This e-viral hepatitis review program is presented by DKP Med Radio. Welcome to the continuation of our e-viral hepatitis review special edition focused on hepatitis B. The multimedia expert commentary section has already been published and is available without charge at eviralhepatitisreview.org. In that part of the program, eViral Hepatitis Review Program Director, Dr. Mark Sokowski, Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center, described the current evidence-based research in three key areas in the management of hepatitis B. One, medication selection for CHB management in special populations. Two, the patient criteria for treating or not treating HBV infection. And three, managing HBV co-infection with HIV, HCV, and or HDV. Dr. Sokowski also reached out to some of the medical community's top hepatitis B experts to provide additional commentary through short discussion clips. In this part of our special edition program, we present the fuller discussions with those additional experts. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Eviral Hepatitis Review, and I'm here with the aforementioned Dr. Mark Sokowski. Dr. Sokowski, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Bob. I'm thrilled to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. Our first topic and our first learning objective is discuss medication selection for CHB management in special populations. In the multimedia part of this program, you spoke with Dr. Jordan Feld about using PEG interferon to manage HPV infection. Before we go to the rest of that discussion, if you would please, doctor, tell us a little bit about Dr. Feld and why you chose to speak with him. Professor Jordan Feld is a world-renowned clinician scientist at the Toronto Center for Liver Disease, where he holds the R. Phelan Chair in Translational Liver Research. In Toronto, he leads a large research program that's focused on new therapeutics and diagnostics for biohepatitis B and C. He also serves on the WSLD IDSA HCV treatment guidance panel and is internationally recognized for his expertise in hepatitis B. I'm very pleased he's joining us today to share his knowledge with me and our audience. And with that as introduction, here's the rest of the discussion between Dr. Mark Sulkowski and Dr. Jordan Feld. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Jordan Feld. Jordan, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Well, we're going to talk about current antiviral therapy for hepatitis B today. I'd like to start with a patient population we're seeing frequently, that is older adults who may have renal sufficiency. Help me understand how you choose which of the nucleotide, nucleoside therapies to use in that patient population. Well, you're right, Mark. This is an area where we really do have to give some thought. And uh, as you know, particularly uh, tenofovir disaproxofumarate, or the, 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 the standard TDF, uh, is associated with renal toxicity. And I think it's important when you think about this population, it's not only whether someone actually has renal disease today, but it's whether they're potentially at risk for renal disease because we're thinking about when we start patients on therapy that they're often going to be on this long term. So as you mentioned, elderly populations, even if they normal renal function now, may have trouble down the road, but also in people with risk factors like hypertension or 
diabetes. These are things that I'm going to be thinking about and saying, maybe TDF isn't going to be my first line uh, therapy in that patient population because of this risk down the road. Now, in someone without lamivudine experience, I'm very comfortable using entecavir as first line therapy where the renal concern is less of an issue. Or alternatively, if they really do need to be on a tenofovir-based regimen, then TAF, a tenofovir alafenamide, is a nice option where it is less, uh, less of an issue with renal and bone concerns. And one group where I do think about this a lot is in when we're using antiviral therapy to prevent hepatitis B reactivation in the setting of immunosuppression. And remember that these patients are often elderly, they're on a lot of concomitant medications. And the last thing the oncologist wants to deal with is their creatinine going up in the midst of uh, chemotherapy. So I do tend to worry about it in that population and tend to use entecavir as first-line therapy, or if, for, if they've had lamivudine experience, then would be thinking about using TAF. A really important point. So I think it's also worth noting that uh, in many regions, sarfenalphenamide is a not yet generic, where TDF and entecavir are generic. And that has come into a play as well in some of our selections of antivirals. But the critical point here is to think about kidney function, taking into account comorbidities and, and patient age. So that's really helpful. Let me, let me ask as a, an add-on, bone effects, same type of rationale, particularly in older adults? Yeah, it's certainly a consideration. We know that this can lead to a, a phosphate wasting uh, injury in the kidney, which does lead to uh, progressive bone loss. Now, fortunately, in hepatitis B mono infection, in the absence of HIV, we have not seen osteoporosis being a major issue. So it's certainly less of a concern. And we don't routinely monitor bone density in patients on TDF. That being said, in someone with significant risk factors or with existing uh, metabolic bone disease, I would shy away from using TDF and, and tend to use either entecavir, um, and as you say, the generic consideration is important, or TAF if, uh, if tenofovir was required. Let's move to a, a, another unique population of people where uh, we certainly sometimes think about which medicine to choose, and that's women who are pregnant. There now is a firm recommendation to use antiviral therapy to prevent mother-child transmission starting somewhere between week 28 and 32 of pregnancy. Typically, that's tenofovir disproxyl fumarate, but where do the other medications fit in? How are you using TAP? Yeah, I think the most important thing to stress here is not to forget to do this because we so often see women with high viral loads and E antigen positive that are not getting antiviral therapy in late pregnancy. And that really does increase the risk of vaccine failure, even if the child is vaccinated at birth and gets hepatitis B immune globulin. And then there's no question here that the recommendation is to use a tenofovir based regimen. There's very good safety data, both from the hepatitis B literature and also from the long experience in the HIV uh, world as well. So we know that these drugs are safe. We've been using TDF as first line, and that still tends to be my practice. There have been some uh, examples of using TAF in small series that have been reported showing good efficacy and good safety data, and there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be safe. The active ingredient is the same. So in a scenario where someone had renal disease in pregnancy, I might opt for TAF, uh, but really TDF would be my, my go-to in, in the setting of pregnancy. And entecavir is generally not, that uh, doesn't have as clear a safety profile with much less experience and some um, teratogenicity in animals. So we would really shy away from using that and, and focus on the tenofovir-based regimens. Well, that's great. Very clear uh, guidance on how to prevent mother-child transmission with therapy. All right, the last topic I want to dig into is a bit controversial. 
one of the goals of antiviral therapy is to prevent hepatocellular carcinoma. And over the last several years, there's been some prospective cohort studies suggesting that one treatment may be more effective at preventing the development of HCC compared to another. Now, these are generally comparing tenofovir to entecavir, but it's been a very controversial issue. I have to say, I've had a couple of people ask me about these data. How would you respond to the emerging and controversial data on this topic? So this is super a super interesting area, and it's really nice to see that there's been a, some digging into it to try to answer the question, but I would agree with you that it's still a little bit unclear. And although uh, some studies have shown that the risk with tenofovir of HCC is lower than in patients treated with entecavir, I think it's really important to take a step back and think about the plausibility of that and also some of the potential biases in the data. Some of the data coming from Asia particularly, it's important to recognize that entecavir was available earlier, so people had been on this therapy for longer. There may have been a bias for treating patients with more advanced disease who are at higher risk of cancer, and this may lead to a bias, and although there's been really significant efforts with statistical methods to control for these biases, whether you completely eliminate them isn't so clear. Not all studies have replicated this response. So I guess what I would do, I must admit I have yet to have a a patient ask me about this. Maybe our folks up in Toronto are not quite as savvy as those down in Baltimore. But if they did ask me about this, I think I would have a candid conversation with them about what the data show, where the controversies are, and then really whether there's a reason that they it would be better for them to be on a tenofovir-based regimen, for example, if they have lamivudine experience, or if alternatively they're at a, a risk of renal disease and an entecavir-based therapy would be a, a, a safer strategy if, for example, they can't access TAF for uh, uh, for financial reasons, then then I might say, look, from a medical area where there's clear evidence, this is this is still the better strategy. At least for now, I am not routinely switching patients on stable entecavir therapy to a tenofovir-based regimen. Dr. Feld, thank you for joining me, and thank you for sharing your expertise with our e-viral hepatitis review audience. Thanks for having me. Very nice. Our learning objective for this section is discuss medication selection for CHB management in special populations. Dr. Zukowski, what do you see as the key points our audience should take away from your discussion? I had a very engaging discussion with Dr. Feld with really three key take-home points. The first is when caring for people who are older, perhaps with renal sufficiency, selecting medications that are easier on the kidneys, things like tocalphenamide and entecavir. The second, when treating women who are pregnant, where we're concerned about mother-child transmission, using tenofovir-based therapies and avoiding entecavir. And the final discussion point was around the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma and the different types of therapy, entecavir and tenofovir. Dr. Feld shared with us that the evidence is not sufficient to use these data to select one treatment over another. Thank you, doctor. In your commentary issue, you explained how the course of HBV infection is dynamic and that not everyone infected needs treatment. Uh, for an additional perspective, you called on Professor Noro Toro from USC. Before we go to the rest of that discussion, if you would please, Dr. Sokowski, tell us a little bit about Nora Toro and why you chose to speak with her. Dr. Nora Toro is from the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine, where she's a professor of medicine and the chief of gastroenterology. She is internationally recognized for expertise in hepatitis B, 
And most germane to our conversation, she led the WSOD 2018 Hepatitis B guidance. This document serves the basis for our practice in the United States. We're fortunate to have Dr. Rowe join us to share her insights in the management of people with Hepatitis B. Keeping in mind our learning objective of described considerations for patients whose HPV disease is characterized as not meeting the criteria for treatment, here's the rest of the discussion between Dr. Mark Sulkowski and Dr. Nora Taroa. Dr. Rowe, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you. There's a lot we could talk about in the, the field of hepatitis B and the management of patients, but I want to focus on one particular patient population that there's been some debate emerging, and that's patients that we previously classified as immune tolerant. These individuals with a, who are typically E positive, a high DNA, and normal ALT levels. Talk to me about how you approach those patients in your clinical practice today, and what things should we pay attention to? Um, the, the importance of, I think, discussing IT is to really acknowledge what a, a sort of a IT patient really looks like. It isn't just any HBV DNA level, but it is one which is usually very elevated. Um, so I first look at the level of HBV DNA. They're typically greater than 10 to the 7 log or higher. These are not individuals who have really lower levels of, of HBV DNA. And if you do see someone whose viral level is under that 10 to the 7th log, then I think you should consider whether they really are immune tolerant or not, or whether they may be somebody who's already transitioning into, say, a more immune active phase. So that's the first thing. The second is I think we have to be attentive to ALT levels and what is a normal ALT level. So, you know, the standards um, really that we put forth in the guidance was uh, a level of 25 is the upper limit of normal for women and 35 for men. So we need to consider those rather than laboratory normals to, to indicate normal. And they truly should be in the normal range. So again, if you have a woman whose ALT level is 30, that is not somebody who is in an immune tolerant phase or wouldn't meet the definition for immune tolerant. And then finally, you have to pay attention to age because immune tolerant is really a phase early in the, the sort of the life of somebody with chronic hepatitis B. So typically individuals are under the age of 30. In our guidance, we set up to 40. But in truth, I actually think 30 is probably the right number. And then when you get over 30, you should again be starting to think, Maybe they really are transitioning, trying to really evaluate them more carefully for activity, even low-level activity that might warrant treatment. So for me, looking carefully at where they have very high levels of virus, paying attention to age, paying attention to what is normal ALT levels are the key things. And I, and I still do not treat those individuals. I know this is an incredibly controversial area, and again... God, you know, there are more data coming forward about sort of the pros and the cons of treating such individuals. But at, at the moment, I'm just very vigilant about following those HBV and ALT levels, paying attention to age, and really not treating them until they really demonstrate to me that they are meeting a kind of criteria for treatment. Well, th those are really excellent points. And I, I, I do want to emphasize this point about what is a normal ALT level for humans to have. And I think this 
lab reference range continues to be a vexing problem in hepatitis B that we just have trouble getting away from. But I do think that's an incredibly important point. And I do anticipate that we'll also see some evolution in how we think about this population. But I think one of the points is that the antiviral drugs we use, when you're talking about levels of viral application that are that high, really aren't necessarily that effective in driving the virus level to undetectable. And that's also one of the reasons why I tend to agree with you in terms of not treating um, these truly immune tolerant patients, the ones who are younger. Well, you raise another really excellent point, and which is you emphasize the need to monitor patients, particularly those for whom you don't recommend treatment. And the guidance does outline specific intervals and test to monitor over time. But I've certainly found in my practice in the real world, particularly during the COVID pandemic, that this monitoring has gotten more challenging. So I'm curious as to how your practice has been and what approach you're taking to monitor these patients for whom you're not recommending treatment. Well, for the guidance, I really um, am aiming to have them have laboratory, mon laboratory monitoring of ALT. Typically, I usually do a liver panel and their HBV DNA level uh, every six months. And then that coincides with many patients who also need HCC surveillance with every six months. So I would add an AFP and make sure they're getting abdominal imaging. And I try to reinforce to the patient why we're doing this monitoring, how important it is. And I think they, they really in, embrace the idea of monitoring for cancer. I think for asymptomatic individuals, monitoring labs may be less obvious to them as to why it's important. But I think emphasizing that we make decisions about a treat, no treat based on those results is, is key. But data from real world shows us that, you know, we're not perfect in doing this, that even when they're set a low bar of, of testing once a year, that often a substantial proportion of chronic hepatitis B patients are not meeting that metric. So we need to do a lot of education. And I think ideally being in systems where you can remind patients about the importance of getting their testing done every six months is important. So, so for the patient I've evaluated, I've made a decision, they don't meet criteria for treatment, then I would typically go to every six months uh, of monitoring. There are some situations actually where I do it more often. If they're ALT is sort of right at the cusp where I might be thinking about treatment. I will usually do it more frequently. I might do it every three months. Sometimes I even do it monthly for a couple of months just to get a sense of the pattern. Mm -hmm. So at a min minimum, it's every six months, but I do do it more frequently in individuals where I think that they're showing that they're, they're in that gray zone and I maybe want to monitor a little bit more to see if they're transitioning. So agree that it's, it can be a challenge, but I think educating patients, using reminders, um, and, and ultimately adjusting uh, the frequency to the actual status of the patient are key aspects. Yeah, I think you make really good points. Uh, I've actually times shared with patients, you know, at times it's the same thing every time. Values are st stable over time. I've actually shared with them examples of other patients where we've been monitoring and they've changed uh, somewhat unexpectedly without a clear causative reason, their ALT's gone up, their viral level's gone up, and we've moved towards treatment. So I do try to share those anecdotes from my practice where, yes, I know things look pretty stable, but um, this disease is dynamic and we need to continue to monitor. 
Uh, I have heard an argument, I'll ask you one more question on this, where people have said, wouldn't it be better if we just treated everyone rather than try to worry about catching these transition stages? And I wonder what your thoughts are when we know that our current therapies, setting interferon aside, typically don't lead to a functional cure. How would you respond to that sort of approach? I think the current therapies, because they're not curative, as you highlight, very infrequently leads to surface antigen loss. This idea that we're going to put patients on treatment means we're putting them on treatment for life. And I think not every patient wants to be on a medication for life. Some may have no problem with that, but there are some that do not. They personally don't want to be on something that they have to take every day. Um, and then I always worry about patients who take it and then decide that, you know, I feel great, I'm going to stop. They lose insurance, they stop. And then the, the flares that can occur when people inadvertently, accidentally, intentionally stop, and then they really get much more severe disease is what I actually worry about. Now, of course, education can help there as well. But I think we can't assume that everybody wants to be on treatment forever. Um, and that, you know, a more individualized approach may be relevant, um, be an important, very relevant discussion to have with your patient in terms of discussing this idea of going on treatment um, and, and what it means in terms of the outcomes that can be achieved. And I personally, I'm not at the point where I think it should be just everybody gets the pill. Yeah, I think you raise a, a number of good points. I particularly do worry about once you start on treatment, the impact of non-adherence to the recommended guidance and therapy becomes actually a little bit higher stakes because of these well-documented flares that can occur. So really good points. And I think as we get closer to uh, therapies that may be able to deliver functional cure, that may change, which sort of leads me to my next question, which is there's been a lot of excitement and a lot of discussion about strategies to try to increase the proportion of people that can achieve functional cure with what are now experimental therapies, but hopefully someday uh, become part of our clinical practice. How are you messaging this research to patients in your practice? Uh, the, these experimental therapies are tangible in that we're reading studies and participating in studies, but they're not here yet. What, what's your approach to your patient population? I sell them a message of hope, to be honest. I think it's incredibly exciting for patients to know that we as a, as a community of researchers are fo focused on cure for them. Many of them have this idea that they have this condition. It's, it's kind of like I either have to take a medication for life, but I'm never going to be you know, done with this uh, chronic uh, disease. I think that can be you know, it's, it's wonderful to give them this sense that, you know, cure is in the future. And I am 100% confident we'll get there. Like, we're not there yet. I tell them five to 10 years, I think we'll be really in a position where really most patients will be offered some opportunity for a curative approach. I think there's a lot of excitement around what we're seeing, but we're not there yet. But I think enough excitement and enough um, new targets, enough enough data that's forthcoming to give us a sense that it is going to be achievable. You know, it's early days, but, but I think it's a, this message of hope and optimism that I, I really want to share with patients, 
that will have cure, and that it'll be with a finite course of treatment. I think that's a, a big change from the way we talk about treatment generally now, which is if you start treatment, generally it's long-term, sometimes indefinite. Um, in the future, we'll be talking about a finite course of treatment with a high rate of cure. I think that's incredibly um, encouraging for patients to hear, to know that in their lifetime, that's uh, likely to be something they'll see. Uh, I think that's an incredibly important point. And I think many people have been wondering, what about hep B? They've seen the advances in the news of hep C. And, and now we can finally say with some confidence that there is momentum and we're making progress scientifically, but really not close enough to change our practice today, we're, uh, which is why the, the guidance from the clinical practice uh, is so important that we're managing patients to try to set them up to be in healthy and able to benefit from these functional cures when they do come. Agree. And I think it, you're right. I mean, it sets the stage as sort of a why are guidance coming out now? Would it be premature given all these new drugs? And I would say no. We have a lot to update now. And then one can envision that as new therapies are approved that we'll see sort of a more rapid um, uh, revision to guidance uh, going down, you know, in the future. But at the moment, yes, we're due for an update because there is already changes to how we think about practice that's independent of these new drugs, but to some extent is um, influenced by that future, right? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's timely that we have uh, a new guidance, hopefully in the very near future. Well, I'll leave with that optimistic idea of changes occurring so rapidly, we have to update the guidance in real time. So with, with that, uh, Dr. Rona, thank you for sharing your thoughts with our EVAR Hepatitis Review audience, and thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Excellent conversation, doctors. Our learning objective for this section is describe considerations for patients whose HPV disease is characterized as not meeting the criteria for treatment. Dr. Zukowski, what do you see as the most important points our audience needs to remember? Dr. Trode shared with us some really important points. I want to highlight three key take-homes. The first, we discussed the approach to the so-called immune-tolerant patient. She shared with us that the, the key is to carefully evaluate these people to understand the impact of hepatitis B, and not just simply to label them, but to really think through the implications of treatment. The second was monitoring people who were not on treatment. And the emphasis here was every six months measuring ALT and DNA levels. And the final point was the question of why not treat everybody with hepatitis B viremia? And we talked a bit in depth about the idea that we have new therapies coming that are in clinical development, and that for many people, observation may be the best course of action until we get curative therapies for more people. Thank you, Dr. Sokowski. Your expert commentary section of this program, and in case anybody missed it the first time, it's available without charge at eviralhepatitisreview.org detail the management considerations for patients whose HPV infection is complicated by coexisting HIV, HCV, and or HDV disease. For an additional perspective, you reached out to Dr. Debika Bhattacharya from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Tell us why. Dr. Debika Bhattacharya 
is an associate professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. There, she studies hepatitis B and HIV co-infection with a particular emphasis on mother-child transmission. She also serves as the chair of the ACTG Hepatitis Transformative Sciences Group, leading research into novel hepatitis B therapeutics. She is internationally recognized for expertise in HIV and hepatitis B co-infection, and I'm thrilled that she's been able to join us to share her insights into this important population and other people with co-infections and hepatitis B. Our learning objective is discuss management considerations for patients whose HBV infection is complicated by coexisting HIV, HCV, and or HDV disease. With that in mind, here's the rest of the discussion between Dr. Mark Sokowski and Dr. Debika Bhattacharya. Well, I want to thank Devika Bhattacharya from UCLA for joining me today. Devika, thank you for sharing your expertise with our audience. Oh, Mark, uh, I really, the thanks is to you. It's such a privilege and an honor to be able to work with you. So thank you for having me. So we've got a lot to talk about. I, I want to first ask you a question about prevention of HIV. And certainly in my practice, I've had some individuals with hepatitis B infection, no HIV, who are asking about their options for HIV prevention or PrEP. And we're really lucky that we've got both oral prevention with tenofovir emtricitabine, and we've got the uh, injectable option with cabotegravir. Talk to me about how you would approach a patient with hepatitis B who wanted to also be uh, shorter to use medications to prevent HIV infection. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. So a couple of quick initial points. And the first is, again, I think this really highlights the importance of hepatitis B screening prior to initiating pre-exposure prophylaxis. And in those who are non-immune, hepatitis B vaccination, because sometimes I do think that that gets lost in the shuffle. Um, and, you know, again, the reason that this is so important is that the medications that we use uh, or some of the medications that we use for HIV prevention, i.e. tenofovir and uh, FTC or tenofovir 3TC, um, also treat um, hepatitis B. So in this scenario, I think the second most important point is that chronic hepatitis B infection is not a contraindication to PrEP with tenofovir emtricitabine. And really, the first important point in somebody with hepatitis B infection who desires HIV PrEP is to, is to identify whether or not they need treatment for their hepatitis B disease. And we do that by assessing fibrosis status, hepatitis B serologies, including the hepatitis BE antigen, ALT, and hep B viral load. If criteria for HPV therapy initiation are met, then we have to ensure that they are, start, that they, uh, are on uh, tenofovir and FTC containing um, uh, PrEP and that they should be continued on this um, for the duration of the requirement for hepatitis B therapy. And ideally, that should be co-managed with somebody with expertise in the treatment of hepatitis B disease. In those who do not require treatment for their hepatitis B disease, um, I would probably still favor um, pre-exposure prophylaxis with tenofovir uh, FTC. Um, and, uh, and that's because it will also ultimately treat the hepatitis B disease. 
If uh, PrEP is no longer desired by the patient, we can safely discontinue the medications in one study of 12 participants with chronic hepatitis B without advanced fibrosis. And perhaps that's actually the key point is you need to make sure that they don't have advanced fibrosis, which in and of itself would be a reason to treat for hepatitis B. Um, but in those individuals who eventually stopped um, tenofovir FTC-containing PrEP, only one participant developed LFT elevations, and it was really only a grade one. Um, and so, again, ideally, um, we like to continue um, therapy, but we can discontinue if necessary. I think one important point is that the intermittent dosing for um, tenofovir FTC um, containing PrEP, um, the two one one dosing, is not recommended because of the frequent uh, because of the frequent discontinuations and the risk um, for flares. So, in this setting, in individuals with chronic hepatitis B, the points are make sure that they don't need treatment for their hepatitis B uh, disease in general. But also, in general, I think because the tenofovir and FTC also treats the chronic hepatitis B, that's the regimen I would choose over cabotegravir. Uh, I think those are really great points. I've had the, the situation as well where a person has been taking entecavir for hepatitis B, and you know we kind of say, well, perhaps we should just switch this to tenofovir, 3TC or FTC, because then we can kind of get two birds with one stone. We can prevent... HIV infection, and we can continue the necessary Hep B treatment. So I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for discussion about HIV prep, and it's a great opportunity to ensure we're using shared decision-making with our patients to think about what makes sense for them. So thank you for that response. And I want to shift gears now to a, another co-infection, leaving HIV aside and bringing in hepatitis C. Um, you know, I think one of the important things we recognized with HCV treatment was that sometimes hepatitis B can flare as you knock down the hepatitis C virus and you get this reactivation. So there's a, a couple scenarios. I think the WSLD IDSA guidance really do a nice job of talking through how we want to approach patients. But I want to focus on a specific patient population. That is the person that does not need Hep B treatment. So you've gone through your workup, and they've got this low HPV DNA. Talk to me about how you approach that particular scenario in your practice. Yeah, perfect. So, uh, Mark, uh, great question. And as you've outlined, we've kind of already gone, uh, you know, we've gone through the, the decision making that this person does not need hepatitis B treatment, because that's really the most important thing. And in those patients who do need hepatitis B treatment, they should be started, no questions asked. Um, but in those individuals with low um, HBV DNA or undetectable HBV DNA, but hepatitis B surface antigen positive, who don't meet criteria for treatment, the WSLD, IDSA, HCV guidance proposes really two approaches. Um, the first is observation. And in that setting, you would monitor HPV DNA monthly, uh, during, and also immediately after the cessation of direct acting antiviral therapy. With the, um, with the approach that you would give antiviral therapy for hepatitis B, in the event of an HBV DNA elevation of greater than tenfold above baseline, or if it is greater than 1,000 IUs per ml in those who were previously undetectable for HBV DNA. That's one approach. 
So the second approach is prophylaxis. And here, HPV therapy is initiated and continued for at least 12 weeks after cessation of DAA therapy. This is my approach. Um, given uh, the risk of HPV reactivation and hepatitis, which is albeit an overall low risk, my concern is that we often have uh, patients for whom laboratory monitoring is difficult, transportation, social situations, financial issues, fear of COVID, and this upfront treatment precludes a concern for any missed visits and a missed HPV reactivation. Okay, thank you for that. I, I'll chime in to say that I also tend to agree with prophylaxis as a safer, actually easier approach than the observation strategy. Now, I want to squeeze in one more co-infection, which at times could even be a tri-infection, and that is infection with hepatitis D or Delta virus. And talk to me about how you approach screening for this, and what do you test for? How do you think about this in terms of screening? Yeah, thanks. Great question. So um, as you know, Delta virus requires hepatitis B uh, in order to uh, replicate and uh, is associated with um, adverse uh, long-term outcomes, including long-term liver-related outcomes. Um, and I think the guidelines are, are really... Um, uh, there are varied opinions in the guidelines. The WSLD 2016 HPV treatment guidance does recommend uh, HDV screening in those with HIV and Hep B co-infection, and that's traditionally been my approach. I screen with an HDV antibody and then follow it up with an HDV RNA. Um, the only currently approved treatment is interferon in the United States, but the availability of a new agent, uh, bulevertide, is very exciting. This is an anti-HDV uh, inhibitor, um, and I think screening for patients now helps me, one, um, risk stratify uh, patients um, in terms of their liver disease. And also, should this become available here in the United States, the um, new agent, blabertide, it gives me an opportunity to kind of have them available for consideration for treatment. Great. So I think, the, I think we're all going to be looking for HDV more aggressively in our people with HBV as we start to have more options for treatment. So that's a really great point and discussion. And we are looking for advances in the treatment of both hepatitis B and hepatitis D. So thank you for that response. And thank you for sharing your expertise with me and our audience today. Thank you. Very nice. Our learning objective for this section is discuss management considerations for patients whose HBV infection is complicated by coexisting HIV, HCV, and or HDV disease. The key points, Dr. Sokowski, that our audience should take away from your conversation. We had a fantastic discussion that really highlighted several key points for taking care of patients with co-infections. The first thing we touched on was people with HIV. And here we actually delved into the idea of preventing HIV with tenofovir and tricytamine and how one would manage hepatitis B in the context of using so-called HIV PrEP. It's really important consideration, and Debra took us through this with some great detail. The second point was managing people with HBV and HCV. And the idea that curing hep C may lead to a flare. And we talked through the idea of preventing flares with anti-HBV treatment in that population. And the final thing we dug into was HDV, or Delta virus, which is a virus that can infect with hepatitis B. 
We talked about screening as well as the potential excitement for new novel therapies of belavertide and entry inhibitor. Thank you, Dr. Sukowski. We're about to wrap things up now, but I want to give you the last word on the topic. So if you would, please, doctor. Well, first, I want to thank our internationally recognized experts who shared their pointed and on-target insights into the management of people with hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is a complex virus that's an important and major cause of morbidity and mortality, both in the United States and worldwide. We're poised to have new insights and new treatments for hepatitis B, and our experts really caught us up to date on how we should have been approaching this patient population. I'm looking forward to more advances in treatment of hepatitis B and D, which we touched on in this program as well. So thank you for joining us and please review the commentary online as well. Our thanks to our guests, Professor Jordan Feld from the Toronto Center for Liver Disease, Dr. Nora Toro from the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine, and Dr. Debika Bhattacharya from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And of course, to Dr. Mark Sokowski from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I also want to thank all our eViral Hepatitis Review readers, listeners, and viewers for your continued support. And to remind you, if you haven't already, to go to eviralhepatitisreview.org to read Dr. Sokowski's multimedia expert commentary on this topic. For eViral Hepatitis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eviralhepatitisreview.dkbmed.com. This eViral Hepatitis Review Special Edition is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Eviral Hepatitis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med LLC. Thank you for listening.